0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm your host, Colin Ellis. And I'm your producer, Matthew O'Mara. Matthew O'Mara, What are you doing here?
1: Well, I'm here today to be the Nightwing to your Batman, the uh, Dick Grayson to your Bruce Wayne, as we talk about a doc that's pretty close to our heart.
0: Just as long as you're not the Jason Todd. It's a little (laughs) inside baseball for you comic book fans. Well, today we are going to be talking about The Heart of Batman, a free-to-stream documentary from Warner Brothers Entertainment, Which looks into the production of one of my favorite shows of all time, Batman the Animated Series.
1: Batman the Animated Series really changed the way people were making animated drama. This was not the usual fare for kids entertainment.
0: We weren't just reinventing Batman. Batman's villain gallery was all being reinvented. Fox did not give us a lot of notes. They had some overall general notes, but at least at first, they were pretty hands off. I always look back at this series and I am stunned at the stories that we got away with telling.
1: We did push back aggressively because we felt like we kind of had to. There was many, many days when I would drive home and think, oh, I'm gonna get fired tomorrow.
0: Well, tell us, how did you get into the series, Matt?
1: The funny thing about how I got into the series is I didn't get into it by, you know, watching Fox Kids or, or whatever channel it was on. I actually got into it because my brothers had gotten a VHS copy of Mask of the Phantasm, um, which was the animated series. After the first season of the animated series, it came out with a theatrical release, like a just a, like a full-length, hour-and-a-half-long movie. And yeah, Christmas time. Yeah, and it was it was like such an amazing thing to watch on our little four by three screen. And after that, I was like, okay, well now I'm gonna start watching the reruns of the shows. And um, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. Um, and I was into it until one specific episode, which I had mentioned to you before, uh, recording, which has to do with Clayface, uh, Matthew Hagen, and oh uh, yes. His story is that he's a, I guess, a minor celebrity, kind of obsessed with keeping up his image, and he finds this makeup that he uses to make himself look younger, and then he gets addicted to it. He gets way too much. Someone throws a bunch of makeup on his face, and then he becomes Clayface, and that, I think, for me, sparked a makeup phobia that has followed me throughout <laughs> my whole life. Uh, so, I, what are you saying? You, you don't wear makeup? I... I was uh, on uh, one video once for, for TVO, and I sat in the makeup chair, like, trying not to, you know, freak out <laughs> while makeup was being put on my face, and immediately just wiped it all off after.
0: um wow, So, it really triggered a, a traumatic childhood memory for
1: you. Yeah, something. And I, I kept thinking about, like, you know, what, what was the cause of this? And then I was able to, yeah, trace it back to that one episode of the animated series, which I think is a testament to how good the show is. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, but anyway,s um, that's how I got into it. How did you get into it?
0: Well, I was eleven when the show came out, right? So it debuted in nineteen ninety two, and I was basically the target audience. So I was kind of embracing my nerdiness at this point. I had, mm. you know, used to play baseball as a kid, and then uh, stopped doing that and started getting more into comic books and movies and TV. And so, yeah, it was just like the perfect timing. The movies, the Batman movies, had also just come out. So uh, Batman Returns had come out that year. Uh, this was the sequel to the first Batman, and they were both directed by Tim Burton. They mm-hmm. had a huge influence on both me and the cartoon.
1: Uh, well, you had mentioned the Tim Burton movies, and I, I know how I feel about
0: them. Um, but what kind <laughs> of impression did they make on you? You know, I was, uh, I was only eight or so when the first one came out, and uh, my parents thought I was too young to see it. So I didn't actually get to see it until maybe a year later when it came out on VHS. And they were right. It was pretty scary for, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, a nine-year-old at that point. But I was excited about them, and I certainly saw the second one in theaters. And uh, you know, I still have the action figures, uh, which are at my desk actually <laughs> at the office. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just a, I'm a huge Batman nerd.
1: Mm. I mean, um, Batman isn't just the movies, not, not not just the animated series. There's also you know comics, and that's where Batman yes. really got, you know, the character got its start. Um, what comics were you into?
0: Well, that same year was uh, when the death of Superman uh, came out. That was a huge deal. So they basically killed Superman off in the comic books. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually picked that uh, trade up, I think, probably a a bit later. But um, that was kind of what started me into comic book collecting. And I started getting into uh, Superman. I started getting into Batman. I started getting into this... uh, a uh, series called uh, the Milestone Comic Books, which was a DC imprint. And they had all these black right. superheroes like Static and Blood Syndicate. And then I sort of lost interest in comics, um, sort of uh, moved on to, I guess, movies and television became more my obsession, but then came back to it in the in the mid to late aughts uh, and started reading more adult graphic novels like Sin City and Watchmen. And then, yeah. um, you know, I've ha- sort of dipped in and out of of comics ever since, but mostly I watched just the superhero movies, like the Marvel movies and stuff like that.
1: One person he'd mentioned before was Superman. And, you know, I I have feelings about Superman, basically because I hate him because he's so boring. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) That is blasphemy, sir. You're talking about about a, a modern god.
1: The thing about Superman is that he's just so... Good. I know that there are different ways that his character has been interpreted, and and different ways that he's been portrayed, where he has been evil. And I believe there's even a a DC movie, a DC animated film, where Superman was uh, Russian, I think. And there's a whole yeah, Superman Red Son. Yeah, very good comic book. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so so there's that. But I mean, the ultimate thing about Superman is that he is good, and he is invulnerable and he is invincible and he will come back and he will win eventually um and i mean i remember reading some panels from the dark knight returns where batman and superman are really pitted against each other and that's mm-hmm. also the basis for i think the ben affleck movie that came out
0: yes yeah yeah dark knight returns was the comic and that was created by frank miller and then the mm-hmm. movie batman versus superman is taking elements of the Dark Knight Returns, as well as The Death of Superman, and it's also a terrible movie, but... Yeah, well... So, the less less said about it, the better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're digressing here a little bit, so we should get into The Heart of Batman. And with a bit of a primer here for our listeners on the show and, and on the documentary, Batman the Animated Series first aired in 1992, and was created by Bruce Timm, Paul Dini, and Eric Rondomski and was produced by Warner Bros. Animation, who created shows like Tiny Toon Adventures, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, and Freakazoid. And, you know, the documentary really explores this world created by Tim and amerdamski but it also introduces a lot of lesser-known people involved in the series, like Gene McCurdy, you know, who is the show's producer, uh, Shirley Walker, who composed the show's amazing intro theme, and Andrea mm-hmm. Romano, who is the show's voice director.
0: Yeah, it's not just a boy's world, right? Like, I mean, that's no, the thing yeah. that, that was that I took away is that there are a lot of women be- involved behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think both Shirley Walker and Andrew Romano are key to the show's success because that yeah. music is unbelievable. And yeah. I listen to it when I'm doing any kind of work. <laughs> um, you always have, I have memories of certain pieces, like just, you know, when you're thinking about the Joker's theme music mm-hmm. or you're thinking about The music for Mr. Freeze or any of the the villains really. And Andrea Romano is this great uh, casting and voice director and um, we'll get into her uh, I guess in the course of the conversation but I think that without her without those women involved I don't think the show is what it is.
1: You know normally without COVID there are a bunch of like comic book conventions going on you know fan expo those sorts of things. I think that's where people like Andrea Romano really get a chance to shine where you know they're up on a panel talking about say something like you know, how do you get, like, uh, Mark Hamill to do his Joker? How did you yeah. get that sound? How did you do that? And, you know, getting a chance to be on a panel there and actually talk about that, I think, is a way to really, you know, people to get highlighted for their work. Um, so mm-hmm. without those f- comic conventions this year, it's it's kind of hard for these, you know, these, you know, figures and, you know, animation production history to really kind of get a voice out. So that's why I like the documentary so much. It, it really uplifted those voices, as you said. Um, yeah, it gives them their due. It does really. And I mean, one thing about the doc is that we we kind of learned that, you know, at the time it was a bit of a renaissance when it came to animation. Uh, I mean, previous to this, we're talking about, you know, shows like the Super Friends and, and Hanna- <laughs> Bar- Hanna-Barbera shows like Scooby-Doo and, you know, Batman himself was a bit more of a, you know, still sticking to the Adam West kind of like silly character <laughs> that he was. Um, I mean, he's become a lot darker since, but you know, what did you think of that sort of era of cartoons?
0: Yeah, these cartoons I hadn't watched before. Like, I never saw Super Friends. Uh, Dragon's Lair was another one I wasn't familiar with. I did watch a lot of cartoons in the 80s because that's, I was born in like 81. So, Mm -hmm. uh, G.I. Joe was very popular with me, Uh, Transformers was very popular. But uh, I can't say I really knew much about the Hanna-Barbera ones, except for maybe the Jetsons and the Flintstones. I guess those were both Hanna-Barbera, but those were from like, I think the 60s.
1: Yeah. Well, I I can tell you, I watched a a, a ton of Scooby-Doo. And the (laughs) the big thing about Scooby-Doo is that there's a villain, they have a clear motivation for why they're bad. And they're always, you know, caught at the end of the episode and sent to jail. And that's like kind Ooh. of the exact opposite of how Batman the animated series deals with their like villains. Like, there's yeah. a lot more depth to them, which I really enjoy. Um, you would have
0: gotten away with it too if it hadn't been
1: for your lousy kids. <laughs> basically, but one thing I think that really held back animation at the time, and this is something they bring up early in the documentary, is broadcast standards and practices, which is also mm. known as BS and P. And basically, what that was was they would look at what you were showing on your show, and they would censor it if things were too violent. They introduce Avery Coburn, who, you know, who is the vice president of Fox Kids BSNP, and one of the producers says of her, you know, that she's kind of the unsung hero of this thing, and that if they had a normal standards person, uh, you know, from the 60s or 70s, you know, the people who are creating those Super Friends kind of shows, uh, that, you know, they would have been a lie for what they were trying to do in Batman the Animated Series. And I mean, they're talking about, like... Things were in Super Friends where, you know, the characters had all been shrunk to the size of like, you know, two inches tall and they had to fight tarantulas and, you know, I think it was Robin in the the show had to punch a tarantula and it fell off a table and they actually had to show the tarantula walking away. So, you know, that was a sort of the the depth of like the violence that they weren't allowed to depict. We had a scene where Robin kicks a
0: spider off a table that's going to attack them. And, uh, and we got the BSNP note, is the spider okay? We have to show that the spider is okay. And so we had a, a panel put in the storyboard where you see the spider crawling away. That first year on Super Friends was
1: just, I, I don't even wanna, I've never gone back to see them. But in Batman the Animated Series, you know, I think they make it pretty clear from the very beginning that this is for a slightly older audience and I think you can just sort of see the darkness inherent with, within it. Like people have guns, like people die, like there is blood. Um, so I mean, it's a really interesting time, I think, for Warner Bros. Animation to be stepping into the space and saying like, no, like we're going to be doing things a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, I actually remember showing uh, an episode to my friend's niece when she was visiting us when we, uh, him and I used to live together and uh, she was mm-hmm. about a year and a half. And we showed her a pretty tame episode for well, what I thought it was tame. <laughs> but uh, she was a little too young and started crying, so we had to turn it off. <laughs> no. But I think, you know, that darkness is kind of what made it so great, right? And I think people usually say when they, th- when they think dark, they mean violence. Um, but it was also, also just the look of the show. I mean, a lot of the action mm-hmm. took place at night. There was a lot of use of shadow. But, you know, it was also just the adult nature of the story. So you talked about Matt Hagen before who is turned into this monstrous creature known as Clayface and can shape shift? and he makes weapons out of his body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what What really made that episode stand out for me was the last scene where uh, Batman gets him into a, like a studio control room and uh, turns on all these TV cameras that show, or sorry, TV sets that show all the roles that Matt Hagen used to play as an actor. Yeah. And his body just starts contorting wildly and he can't handle it because he's so overwhelmed. By who he used to be, and I just think this is a kid show. <laughs> like that's just—it's crazy. Like I just think like that they were able to get away with that um, at that time. I think I—I I just think it's—it's it's an incredible achievement. Look at what you used to be. No, no, turn them off. You
1: can play those roles again, Hagen. Let me help you find a cure. No,
0: Hagen's gone. Make him stop haunting me.
1: Talking about the show's maturity, uh, one episode I was hoping to talk about was Heart of Ice, which explores a new story created by Paul Dini for Mr. Freeze. I mean, what did you think of that episode?
0: Yeah, this is, I think, the most celebrated episode of the, of the whole show. It, it, it won an Emmy. Mm-hmm. It uh, basically took this character uh, from, I think, the 60s, Batman, and turned him into this very tragic figure. And for those who don't know, Mr. Freeze was a scientist named Dr. Victor Freeze, mm-hmm. Freeze spelled F R I E S, whose terminally ill wife he puts into a cryogenic stasis so he can find a cure until he can find a cure for her condition. And the man that the company Freeze works for it tries to stop him uh, from doing this work because it's costing him money. And in a scuffle, Freeze gets knocked into a bunch of chemicals and it turns his body uh, basically so that he can't live outside a subzero environment. And he creates this suit that uh, augments his strength. Mm-hmm. And he creates a freezing gun that he uses to like shoot ice at people, and it's a lot of people think maybe unfortunately about the Arnold Schwarzenegger version of Mister Freeze <laughs> when they think of Mister Freeze, but they shouldn't. They should think of this uh, Batman the Animated Series episode, and it's great because you know he's he's an empathetic character, right? Like he he he's seeking vengeance on the on the man who's destroyed him. Um, while also, you know, mourning the loss of his wife and he has this, this great, there's this great image of him holding like a, a snow globe with this ballerina and he, he's almost like deliver, delivering a sonnet. It's like very, it's like Shakespeare, it's Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that was what's so brilliant about the show. It was able to create villains who you really sympathize with. This
1: is how I'll always remember you. Surrounded by winter, forever young, forever beautiful. Rest well, my love.
0: The monster who took you from me will soon learn that revenge is a dish best served cold. And who Batman sympathizes with? Because it's not just it's not just the audience. Batman actually has empathy, and that's what's such a great mm-hmm. uh, invention of this series is that I think in most uh, iterations of Batman, you know, he's just beating up bad guys, and uh, you know, some argue has a bit of a fascist <laughs> uh, outlook. But in this in this cartoon, he's actually. In a lot of ways trying to help them
1: i talked about this a little bit before but you know you know batman's love of showing you know the the you know not just the black and white interpretations of good and evil kind of come from its sort of noir detective story inspirations uh you know where you know both the antagonist and protagonist has flaws because batman like bruce wayne is a deeply flawed character Like, he has like a lot of things that he's also trying to deal with and figure out, you know, specifically the death of his parents, you know, putting people like, you know, Robin into harm's way, um, dealing with, you know, the moral ambiguity of like dealing with these villains by himself. So, he's like a deeply flawed character too. And I mean, in Super Friends, you know, Batman's only flaw was like the bad animation. So (laughs) it it was just like, it, it showed, you know, this is how stories could be told on television. And like, one person who I think is, you know, really the kind of hero of the series is Gene McCurdy and Mm -hmm. she took a chance on Bruce Tim and Eric Rondonski, like she didn't, these guys weren't like, they were like background painters and they weren't like, they had never even produced a show before. Yeah, they had no experience. Zero experience and she took a chance on them saying like, you guys have a vision, I'm gonna help you push it through. And then she brought on, you know, Alan Burnett to create the sort of the depth and creativity of the show, and, and, and sort of give it a good story. So I mean, she really took a chance on these guys.
0: Yeah, it was it was also just fortunate timing too, because like, you know, you have all these great writers, these great animators, producers who you know had some. I mean, shouldn't say had no experience; they had they had some experience, but it wasn't like they were they had run a, like a like a series on their own before. Mm-hmm. And then they also had a studio that was willing to basically give them what they want, what they needed. And I think uh, Steven Spielberg was actually at Warner Brothers at the time. That was part of the reason they were mm-hmm. uh, giving them money is because they wanted to make Steven happy and he was, I think, involved in Tiny Toons. And so in Tiny Toons was part of Warner Brothers animation. So I think, you know, a, a lot of times, I think a lot of movies, like the su- successful ones, mm-hmm. uh, the ones that, you know, are classics, same with TV. I think a lot of times it comes down to luck, but it's also just having the right people. Uh, on board and a willingness to put money into it and let people be creative and i think that's how you get uh great art and i Mm -hmm. I do think of batman the anime series as great art i don't think it's just like a a kid show i don't think that's why people still come back to it i think it's because it's 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 themes it's it's um its characters still Mm -hmm. resonate i'm i just did a rewatch of it like i mean it's (laughs) it's a show that's been on it's been over uh off the air for how many years and, you know, yeah. came out in early 92 when I was a kid and I'm still watching it and I'm still getting things out of it. I think that's just what's, what's so great about
1: it. Still holds up, still holds up. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I mean, one thing that might not hold up though is, is something that's central to, to Batman's character is this idea that, you know, Batman slash Bruce Wayne is this billionaire turned vigilante detective, uh, which is a little bit, problematic these days. I mean, what do you think of that aspect of his character in 2020?
0: Yeah, you know, I haven't read the comics uh, in a while, mm-hmm. and so I don't know what they're doing with him. I think they actually are, cre- or they have come out with a black suit, Batman, so I'd be curious to read that. Yep. But, you know, I think Batman's always being reinterpreted and, and modernized. In fact, I think uh, someone in the film mentions that Bob Kane, uh, who created the character, along with Bill Finger, we should give him credit, mm-hmm. um, you know, he created a character that was written to be reinterpreted, and that goes, I think, for all superhero comics. I mean, I you were you were slandering Superman earlier, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think, in his defense, uh, I think Superman uh, can be written well. I think the Christopher Reeve Superman movie, the first one at least, is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I I love that film so much. Um, I think that when it comes to Batman, there are aspects of his character that are to some extent harder to justify you know his vigilantism has always been one of his defining traits but you know we've seen some really sad uh real life examples of vigilantism uh, in the u.s and in, i think in canada as well mm-hmm. um i'm thinking of the george zimmerman trayvon martin shooting um
1: typically typically when people bring take the law into their own hands in the real world things yeah, don't really it, go well
0: you know it's in it, it and you know there's also been a reckoning when it comes to how we look at police and batman mm-hmm. has had this you know, sort of tenuous relationship with law enforcement. Um, you know, he's always worked outside the law, but he still has this kind of friendship with Commissioner Gordon. So I don't know. I think, you know, like like I said, he's always being reinterpreted. And I think the Christopher Nolan movies did a very good job of grounding him to, in some kind of reality, although mm-hmm. <laughs> in the third one, it gets a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, I think the most recent iteration of him in the movies has not been very successful. I'm thinking he was Zack Snyder's treatment in uh, Batman versus Superman and Justice League and yeah. then you know next where we're going to have Matt Reeves uh his interpretation of him uh, with Robert Pattinson in the lead role so we'll see what happens I think it's it's possible to get him right uh I think it's possible to update him to um you know put him in a uh, a proper framework for the 2020s as we're entering them now but uh yeah we'll just have to wait and see well so what else what else did you like about the doc
1: We had talked about this a bit before, but one thing I really, really enjoyed about the documentary is, you know, just hearing about the people who are, you know, in the background of the production process, you know, the unsung heroes, like learning about them, like the Gene McCurdy and, you know, uh, Glenn Murakami, you know, people like that who are on the team who aren't, you know, the the face of the production and just learning about their contributions. Um, One thing I would say about the documentary though, and and this is something where, you know, it's not always easy to control and, and it's kind of like, you know, criticizing it you know, in the rearview mirror of it being released. But it is a lot of talking heads. And talking heads in filmmaking parlance is basically when you just have your interview subject sitting in a chair and they're just sort of talking at the interviewer and, and sort of, you know, telling, not showing necessarily what happened. You know, it leads to a really detailed explanation for every step of the production process. But you know, it's not really that fun of a documentary to watch. And I did find myself watching it kind of at 1.5 times speed (laughs) at times, trying to to get through it a little faster. Um, But, you know, that's not to say that all animation docs like this are like that. Um, There's actually a Extra on the Samurai Jack DVDs which tells the story of Genji Tarkovsky who's a creator of that show and The narration of that documentary is actually done by Mako Iwamatsu who played Aku in the show and they use these little animated Interstitials to sort of tell the creator's story The boy is named Genner, and one day would be known as Gen- Gan- Gandhi Genndy Tarkovsky I mean, I would have loved if they had done this, that for this kind of documentary. Like, you could get Mark Hamill to be your voiceover and that would have been awesome. One thing that the documentary doesn't really get into is talking about Batman's like long, long ago inspirations. And I'm talking about pulp novels here. I'm talking about characters like, you know, The Shadow, Doc Savage, The Avenger. You know, characters like that who were, you know, billionaire playboys turned vigilantes. Um, But the one thing about those characters and the one thing about Batman's character which is really important to remember is he's not just Batman. He's also like the world's greatest detective who uses, you know, logic, facts, and science to take down the majority of his villains. And, you know, a lot of those pulp characters are the exact same. Like they use science and they use fact and they use, you know, ultimately like the truth to get to the bottom of the mysteries that they're dealing with. But I would have loved it if they could have gone into it a bit more.
0: Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of, Featurettes about DC animated movies. And so a lot of what we've seen in this film, I've seen covered before. And I'm thinking specifically, you know, we hear from Kevin Mm Conroy, who is the voice of Batman. You know, I've heard, you know, the story of how he kind of got cast and also, you know, his um, choice to, I guess, make Batman Mm -hmm. his actual voice, right? Like the voice he uses for Bruce Wayne is actually the disguise, which I think is a really neat. Uh, invention of the series. Um, the doc was really focused on the production aspects, which, you know, and just how they developed their animation style and what influenced that. And I like the focus on all the challenges that comes with creating a, a cartoon that's geared for kids, but that also adults can enjoy. Uh, how they struck that balance I found really interesting. So I liked it overall, but there were things I kind of mm-hmm. w- was hoping to hear more about, you know, I mean, back in, I think in the mid to late nineties when they revamped the series uh, they, it was a little controversial, right? Because they changed the design of the, a lot of the characters, the Joker being one that I think looked terrible. Yeah, and I think there was some backlash to it, and I'd love to have heard them talk a bit about that. I also kind of wanted to learn more about the cast. I mean, we hear from Kevin Conroy when we hear from Tara Strong, who does who did Batgirl in the later mm-hmm. uh, in the revamp version of the series. Um, We also hear from Lauren Lester, who played Robin. But, you know, there's other actors who were involved that I would have loved to hear from. Arlene Sorkin, who did Harley Quinn. And I think Harley Quinn is probably the the show's biggest um, um, invention because she was a character created for the series by Paul Dini. And, um, you know, he based it on her, sort of. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's just a wonderful character. And it's taken on this whole new life. And Margot Robbie plays her in the movies. Yeah. And so it would have been nice to hear from her about what she thinks of that you know that having that kind of legacy, I guess. I arranged another early parole as soon as I heard about Gordon's testimonial <laughs> it is
1: to laugh, huh Mr. J
0: and um. Yeah, just kind of what went into getting all those actors, because, I mean, they they attracted an incredible amount of talent. If you, like, you know, watch the credits, and I always do look for the voice actors involved, mm. um, you'd be surprised at who was on there. I was actually just watching uh, Batman Beyond uh, yesterday, and yep. George Lazenby
1: oh.
0: <laughs> is in an episode. You know, Ron Perlman, who we talked about, uh, we talked about Clayface earlier, he played Mm Clayface, you know, there's just so many actors like from TV and from the stage and also the way they used to do the the reads like together, like a radio play. Yeah, that was really interesting that they when they talked about that, just how they uh, how they act together, because they do the voices first and then they do the animation to match uh, the way the ca- the actors are speaking. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, I, I loved all that stuff. Uh, I like, kind of wanted to learn more about that. But, you know, you actually have a better eye for visuals than me. So why don't you talk about about the animation style and the production that went into making it?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the doc, Bruce Tim refers to the show's aesthetic as Dark Deco which I think is kind of a a perfect way to encapsulate the look of the show. But they also mentioned that, you know, the show's look was inspired by the Superman cartoons created by Fleischer Studios, uh, which they say had a kind of an unconscious effect on Batman's design and then a very conscious effect when it's mentioned by Gene McCurdy that she said that she liked those old cartoons. And Bruce Timm is like, Oh yeah, that's exactly what we've done here. But we didn't actually want to just recreate that look. We kind of wanted to put our own spin on the superhero world, you know, in, in incorporating you know, film noir and German Expressionism and Art Deco. Um, but we specifically were trying to do something that wasn't exactly Fleischer-inspired. And then one day we were meeting with Gene McCurdy, and she kind of said, you know, the show should look like a Fleischer-Superman cartoon. We're just like... Yes, it should. It's like, yeah, we were trying to not do that, but it totally makes sense to do that. So yeah, why fight it? One thing I encourage listeners to take a look at is, you know, you can Google an art style called Streamline Modern, uh, which sort of encapsulates, I think, what the show's producers were going for in terms of the look, came out in the 1930s, 1940s, and just look it up and you'll see like, oh yeah, this is what they were going for.
0: One thing that, that really stuck out, you know, when I watched it later as an adult, is that they use Tommy guns. Uh, you know, like, so basically, you know, it's set in this period, but it's still kind of modern, right? Because they still have modern technology. It's just the look, like all the, ca- like the gangsters dressed in kind of like pinstripe suits, and they have the fedora hats, and then the technology is still you know, like car phones and, and computers. So you know, the, the way they were able to blend the two eras is really fascinating.
1: For me though, that actually really grates against me when I see that kind of thing because, you know, you have people using, you know, rotary telephones and then you have the Batwing. So, it's like you get this really weird juxtaposition of technology. And one thing that really drives me nuts in kind of a meta way is, you know, what kind of technology is Bruce Wayne's organization Wayne Enterprises hoarding? Like they could revolutionize (laughs) air travel except he uses it to fight crime. (laughs)
0: You know, <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of funny. Like, I mean, there's a whole like, you know, you know, Batman uses all this money to fight crime, but like he could just invest that money into, you know, eradicating poverty. Yeah, and I think yeah. Bruce Wayne does do that, some of that. Like his, you know, he I think he's involved in philanthropy. Mm-hmm. But you know, maybe if they uh, tax the rich a little more, some of these social problems we have. <laughs> You know, like we could uh, add a new wing to Arkham or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe update some of their practices in that in that place a little bit.
0: Well, you know, we gotta we gotta finish up here, but you know, I've had a lot of fun talking about this with you because I don't really get to talk about Batman as much on the car on the podcast. Uh, so I wonder if there's anything you'd like to leave our listeners with that you think uh, they should uh, know about this doc or about Batman the animated series.
1: Um, I mean, just find a way to watch the show. Like, just, just find a way to stream it yourself at home. You know, it, it as you said, like, every single bit of the show is a work of art. And the one thing I think I love the most about the show, and, and they talk about this in the doc, are the episode's title cards. Um, yes. The, the title cards are just these beautiful, like, illustrations showing, like, you know, it, it just completely captures what the episode is going for. So, if you're looking to, you know, maybe you don't want to watch the whole show, just look at the title cards, and then you can see, like, exactly what what each episode is going for. You can get a sense of the design of the show. You can even get a bit of the, you know, the character's story that they're going to be exploring in the episode. And, um, I don't know, I, I think docs like this are, it's scratching kind of a nostalgia itch, I think, for people right now, because we're all sort of stuck at home and, and really can't go out and stuff and i think you know being able to explore you know a show that probably gave a lot of kids you know comfort at the time when they were watching it um kind of gave them you know, a hero to look up to a a character to really you know like enjoy i, I think it kind of scratches a weird yeah like the nostalgic itch for people and i think it's a it's a good watch because of that
0: The last thing I'll say, and this was mentioned in the doc, uh, one of the actors, Tara Strong, who played Batgirl, Mm -hmm. you know, she she talks about going to fan expos and meeting fans. And she remembers this one woman who brought her daughter who had autism Mm -hmm. uh, and she was barely communicative or not communicative at all. And then she saw Tara Strong and just started talking and was like so excited to see her. And, you know, I think... It's, it's funny because it's 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 like i said it's an it's an old cartoon from the 90s but fans still love it and they show their children it and they get into it and it's just it's it's going to continue on this legacy you know it's it's just like each generation is going to pass it on to their kids and i just think that's great and i think that it's got a lot of um brilliance behind it and i think I'll, I'll just I'll always cherish it, and I can't wait to have kids so I can show it to them. Maybe not when they're one, but <laughs> <laughs> certainly when they're older, I, it's, the, it's the thing I look forward to most, uh, sharing with them. And that's the podcast. The Heart of Batman is free to stream right now on YouTube.
1: If you like what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and better yet, tell a friend. Do you want to get in touch? Well, write to us at ondocs at tdo.org. Or you can follow Colin on Twitter at ColinLS81
0: or me at Matthew O'Mara. Our producer and editor is Matthew O'Mara. Our production support coordinators are Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor. And the executive producer for Digital is Lori Few. We're taking a break over the holidays, but we'll be back with new episodes in 2021. So please stay subscribed. And we'll catch you at the next screening. Matthew O'Mara, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Really, really dialed that one to 11. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do one more take and then you have a few options.